dulcet tones of someone who loves history, humanity, and space a whole hell of a lot. I only censor myself around people I'm not comfortable with, and since I'm talking to myself, I am extremely comfortable, so I cannot guarantee no swears. I'm Hannah, born in Oregon in the very early 90s, and part of that Hannah-named hive mind, but I happily answer to HD, so brace for the obligatory joke. Coming to you in high def, HD fills her sweet spare time with space. There was nothing, and then there was something. That's what happens if you break down any story about the creation of the universe, including the current scientific theory. There was nothing, and then there was something. In a Babylonian legend, the something happened when a god cut a divide between the sky and the earth. In a Hindu story, the sky and the earth came from two halves of an egg that the god Brahma placed into the sea to hatch. In Greek legends, which are notoriously horny, the sky, Uranus, was birthed from the earth, Gaia, and proceeded to marry her and pop out tons and tons of other gods and demigods. In a fun and gory Norse legend from Scandinavia, the heavens are a frost giant's skull and the clouds are his brains, while his eyebrows are a wall around the world. And then there's the rather boring scientific explanation that still falls into the same pattern. There was nothing, and then there was something. All of these stories are about the creation of the world, but there are even more fascinating theories, or stories, about how the universe continues to exist and what it looks like. Even our current theory, with all the science and math and millennia of study behind it, is still only a theory. If you recall from the Muapin episode of this podcast, NASA defines cosmology as, quote, the study of the properties of our universe as a whole. The word comes from the Greek word cosmos, or order and world. Cosmos means both order and world. (laughs) Um, And the suffix logia, which means discourse. Cosmology. Cosmos. Logia. Folks have indeed been discoursing about the order of the known universe for a long, long time. Before we even knew that our solar system was just a part of an even vaster system. Before we knew that the sun was the center. Before we knew what planets really were. And before we knew what the moon was. People make stories to explain what's happening. Scientists are the people who base their stories on observation, calculation, and deep thought. That doesn't mean they always got it right. Merriam-Webster tells me that the word astronomy wasn't used until the 12th century CE. Before that, anyone who pursued the study of the heavens fell into the category of philosopher, because there just weren't any good ways to get out there and test shit. All you could do was observe it and ponder it. Alright, here's my heads up. This episode's cosmology overview is pretty Eurocentric, uh, but a lot of our records of early cosmology theories from the time of the Greeks and the Romans come from the libraries of Alexandria and from the records and translations of Arabic scholars. I have to give major props to Al-Hassan ibn al-Haytham, an Arab Muslim scholar living in Alexandria, Egypt, from 965 till about 1040 CE. The guy transcribed Euclid's geometrical works and Ptolemy's Almagest every year for his livelihood. And he wrote three of his own treatises, criticizing Ptolemy's theories, though he didn't have any solutions for how to unfuck the model. This is only the start of a bunch of complicated names and dates I'll be throwing out in this podcast, so if you need to see it all lined up and written down, check out the podcast at, all one word, fillthevoid-podcast.com.
with dash space .tumblr.com, where you'll also find my research sources, uh, a vocab list, music credits, and my script for this episode. Okay, here we go with the big major cosmological models throughout recorded history. The first one I'll hit is Ptolemaic. Claudius Ptolemy, who was a Greek scholar living in Roman-controlled Egypt from 100 to 170 CE, set out a mathematical model of the universe in his Almagest. Another treatise, called Planetary Hypotheses, addressed a theoretical physical model for the universe. He was basing his theory on the Greek philosophers Aristotle, Plato, and Thales. Thales had a geocentric model of the universe, which means the Earth was the center. Aristotle had observed the elements and concluded that there was a natural order to them, that Earth was the most stable and therefore occupied the lowest sphere, then water, then air, then fire. These four elements were part of their own sphere and followed the observable laws of nature. Outside of this, though, was the mysterious element called ether, which was the region of the universe that carried the heavenly bodies in a series of concentric spheres. The spheres idea came from Plato. The hierarchy of these spheres, from closest to the Earth to furthest, went the Moon, Mercury, Venus, the Sun, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and then the fixed stars was its own sphere. The fixed stars was considered an unchanging sphere, and I'm going to emphasize that because it's very important. The fixed stars, according to these ancient Greek philosophers, never changed. They could basically be considered little white lights all stuck to a single surface. People didn't publish speculation on what was beyond them, with one beautiful exception that I'll mention when we get to the Renaissance. But for now, here, in Ptolemy's time, that's eight celestial spheres total. Later, astronomer philosophers after Ptolemy added two other spheres, and then they kept piling other crazy shit onto his model because the model just didn't work. The ninth sphere was added to account for the precession of the equinoxes. This is something that happens because the Earth wobbles on its rotational axis. What it means is that the times that the spring and fall equinoxes and the summer and winter solstices happen changes from year to year because of how the Earth is wobbling. It also means that the position of Polaris, the North Star, looks like it changes over a very long period of time. As we now know, this wobble cycle lasts about 26,000 years. Ptolemy noticed the precession of the equinoxes when he compared his measurements of the position of certain bright stars that he saw to observations that had been made earlier by Greek philosopher-astronomers uh, Hipparchus, Menelaus, Timocharis, and Agrippa. The ninth sphere added to Ptolemy's model was there to explain why this precession of the equinoxes happened. The tenth sphere that was added to his model was called the primum mobile. It revolved from east to west in a 24-hour period and basically just gave the motion to other spheres. Some models left this out and said that gods or spirits were in charge of shoving each sphere along its path, but some people added this tenth sphere, the primum mobile. Things started getting even messier in Ptolemy's planetary hypotheses, though. He had to account for planets' retrograde motion, which I talked about in the Mulapin podcast. To explain why these wandering stars that the Greeks called planets would slow down and reverse direction sometimes, Ptolemy added a second orbit that each of these planets was following, with the center of that orbit around a fixed point on its crystalline sphere. This extra special bonus little orbit was called the epicycle. He also tried to explain the weird, sometimes fast, sometimes slow movement of the planets by placing the Earth off-center from the celestial spheres, which was called an eccentric orbit. This was all overly complicated and messy and ugly as hell on paper, and ultimately it didn't work. 
It also survived about 2,000 years as the best cosmological model that the European and Arabic world had available. No one could fix it because they were operating under the absolutely wrong belief that the Earth was the center of the universe, so of course it didn't work. It wasn't until the 16th century that Ptolemy's model goes, uh, was replaced, this time by Copernicus. A delicious fun fact for you, I'm getting the basis for a lot of these models out of a book that was apparently only published in Oregon by the author for himself in 1916, and he only refers to one scientist by his first and last name. Copernicus is not that man. I had to Google for Copernicus's first name, and my Googling taught me that Nicolaus Copernicus, a Polish astronomer who lived from 1473 to 1543, looked somewhat like Benedict Cumberbatch. The plainer-faced Copernicus wrote a treatise called On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, and his one and only pupil, Georg, uh, oh geez, Georg Wachim, oh geez, Georg Redicus, <laughs> I'll just skip this middle name entirely, pushed him to have it published. The treatise presented the first recorded heliocentric model for our universe. It was still a bit of a mess, and it still had epicycles in it, but he also put forth the idea that the Earth and planets moved around the Sun in elliptical orbits, which is true. Unfortunately, Copernicus died the same year the book was published, in 1543. Uh, the cute little story goes that he managed to see the actual physical book printed on the fairly recent printing press, and then immediately died. I hope he didn't open and read the copy, though, because a clergyman named Andreas Osiander had supervised the printing, and with absolutely no one's permission, had written an introduction to the book that painted the entire thing as a hypothesis and not an actual cosmological model of the universe. I mean, Copernicus's intent was to present a cosmological model of the universe that was heliocentric, and Osiander was like, no, it's a thought experiment. It's a major dick move. Anyway, the book got banned in 1616 by the Catholic Church, and then they issued some corrections so that people could read on the revolutions by 1618. This banning and bodlerizing was in the wake of the Counter-Reformation, a movement in the Catholic Church that advocated doctrinal purity in the face of the new religious sects that were popping up, like the Protestants and the Lutherans. Copernicus's ideas did influence other astronomers, though, despite the ban and the censorship. I now get to talk a little bit about my astronomical crush, the Danish astronomer and noseless marvel Tycho Brahe. You can pronounce his name at least eight different ways, and there's actually a band out there using a different pronunciation of his first name that makes some sweet, sweet California dream and jams. magnificent man built an observatory on the Isle of Haven without a telescope, because telescopes hadn't been, been invented yet, and he called it Uraniborg, which means celestial castle. He lived there with his massive family and his false nose, because he lost his real nose in a duel, and all he did for his entire career was take extremely precise measurements of stars. God damn, I love Tico. I'm going to call him Tico, and it's not out of disrespect, it's out of complete and sincere love. I'm on a first-name basis because I wish I could be. You can't deny me this. 
In this gorgeous space castle of his, Tycho built yet another cosmological model that tried to reconcile the aggressive need for geocentrism with the fact that Copernicus's heliocentric idea was better. Tycho came up with a geohelio compromise called the Tychonic system, where the sun still went around the Earth, but the planets all orbited the sun. It was an absolute disaster of a model. The drawing in my class notes is just a tangle of orbit lines, but it was pretty popular and Jesuit missionaries who visited China in the 1700s taught it to Chinese astronomers. It still wasn't a good model, though, for all that it made it to China and was designed by my favorite historical figure. I will talk about him much, much more often in this podcast, don't you worry, but while Tycho's model was shit, the German collaborator and lab assistant, Johannes Kepler, that worked with Tycho during the last year of his life, Kepler designed an even sillier one. Kepler believed in Copernicus's model wholeheartedly, not Tycho's bullshit model. But Kepler got obsessed with spacing out the orbits of the planets, as in finding the space between one celestial sphere and another. And so he designed these nested shapes that would help determine how far apart the celestial spheres were, though he insisted on using only uh, these shapes called platonic solids as the planetary spacers. There are five platonic solids, a tetrahedron, a cube, an octahedron, a dodecahedron, and an icosahedron. And in an astonishing coincidence, there were six known planets, which was definitely a sign that Kepler was right, because look, there's a platonic solid to help divide up every orbit. Kepler ultimately had to abandon his precious shapes model, though, because he found, when he observed Mars in retrograde and saw Tycho's delectable data on the times Mars had been in retrograde in 1583, he realized that the orbits had to be elliptical. Specifically, his first law of planetary motion, there are three of them, was that all planets in our solar system move in elliptical orbits, with the sun as one focus of the ellipse. Kepler's second law was, as a planet's orbit brings it closer to the sun, it accelerates. When it is far from the sun, it's traveling a shorter path than when it's close to the sun. Planets change speeds, but cover the same area of their orbit in the same amount of time. I'm sorry I can't chart this one out for you, but it's kind of amazing that he reached this conclusion about planets changing speeds without any understanding of gravity. Oh, and Kepler's last law is about how a planet's distance from the sun is related to how long it takes to go around the sun, but it's very mathy, and I don't want to go into it. I got all the info on Kepler's laws from a book I have called Archimedes to Hawking, Laws of Science and the Great Minds Behind Them. That's by Clifford A. Pickover, if you'd like math and you hate how little math I talk about here. Go get that. Go get that math. Pickover has it for you. I don't. I just have history and passionate talk of Tycho Brahe. (laughs) All right, I only got one request from a listener on a topic to cover, so I hope this is enough for her. Hi, Zoe. I love you. If you want me to give you a shout-out, you can hit me up on Twitter at HDNTheVoid, all one word, or you can hit me up on this Tumblr and just suggest some things that I should talk about. Back to it. I hope I do this justice for you, Zoe. We all know of him, even if all we know is that he has a euphonic name with a good mouthfeel, Galileo Galilei. This Italian astronomer invented the fucking telescope, and thank God he did, because that telescope did need to happen. He drew the craters on the moon. He saw sunspots, and he realized that the sun was spinning. He talked shit about how the church was aggressively insisting on scripture being the only model for the universe. How dare he, this badass! His ideas and his endorsement of heliocentric, Copernican cosmological models only made it out there because the guy was incredibly popular. He wrote in Italian instead of Latin. Most religious, technical, and scientific works were still written in Latin to show you that the people writing them were very smart, 
but Galileo didn't give a shit. And he named the moons that were orbiting Jupiter that he saw through his telescope after the extremely powerful Medici family. And he gave the king of Spain a handmade telescope. And he was bros with the Archduke of Austria and the Prince of Poland. So he was kind of the best, and everyone knew it. That's probably why he wasn't killed for endorsing Copernicanism in his fun little book, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. As a holdover from ancient Greek philosophical works, it was still pretty common to present information as a kind of a play between multiple characters that argue different viewpoints. In Galileo's dialogue, he has a mediator character, a character who's a Copernican, and a character who argues against Copernicanism, but is also named Simplico, and is presented as pretty stupid. It was really just sassy as fuck, and at the age of 45, he was placed under house arrest by order of the Inquisition. And he died under house arrest, but at least the word was out. And it was here, in the Renaissance, that we hit one of the first theories that there was something beyond the planets and the fixed stars. This model didn't make it out there, and the man who presented it and endorsed it was burned at the stake when he was 51. But hey, I'm talking to you, Giordano Bruno. This is just for you, from me. You thought about other stars, other planets, and the possibility of aliens before anyone else. Your life alone is justification for why that movie Contact with Jodie Foster was so preoccupied with the religious implications of aliens. You were a Dominican friar who talked about aliens until they killed you for it. You said the universe was infinite and had no center, and honey, you were so far ahead of your time that they Joan of Arc'd you. I love you too, Bruno. Not as much as Tico, but a whole lot. Now, I will apologize for this, but I'm going to skip explaining an entire cosmological model. Its most popular iteration was developed by René Descartes, and if you look at the show notes, you will see his name and realize he was French, because the spelling is nothing at all like how I just said it. His theory was the vortical theory. I don't understand it at all. But good news, it was also inaccurate. I absolutely hate this theory and the swirly-twirly orbits I had to draw in college because it explored vortexes, or whirlpools, as the basis for planetary movement. But I do want to point it out, because it demonstrated a shift that was happening during the 1600s. Copernicus was right, and everyone who was scientifically minded acknowledged it at last, a century after he'd published about it. There was a workable cosmological framework for the known universe, the heliocentric model. The problem now was, how was everything moving, and why did it all stay in these very regular orbits? Whirlpools was one answer. A wrong one, but not a bad idea, given the fact that gravity wasn't here yet. And then there was gravity. Sir Isaac fucking Newton, an English nerd and massive academic asshole in a time when academic assholery was the gold standard. This guy figured out that there was a force drawing every piece of matter in the universe together. This was his first law of universal gravitation. Every material particle attracts every other particle with a force that is directly proportional to the mass of the attracting particle and inversely proportional to the square of the distance between the particles. Boom. Big stuff has more gravitational pull than small stuff, is what that boils down to. The planet's constant motion around the sun is due to Newton's first law of motion, the law of inertia. It says that everything in motion stays in motion unless an outside force acts on it, and same thing if something's at rest. But Newton's third law also brought something to the table when it came to cosmological modeling. This law is that good old, for every action there is an equal and opposite reaction. And for planets, this means that while they orbit the sun due to its gravity and size and mass, the sun is also affected by the planet's gravitational pull. 
Now we know why the planets orbit the sun. We figured out the universe. Well, no. My true space love Tycho had witnessed a new star appearing in the constellation Cassiopeia in 1572, and he realized that the outer sphere of the fixed stars wasn't so fixed after all, that things could change out there. Comets had been noticed for centuries, but when Edmund Halley realized that records of the same comet kept cropping up every 75 to 76 years, and yes, that's Halley's Comet, it was the first evidence that things other than the planets could orbit the sun. The word solar system first appeared in writing in 1704. There was something else out there, beyond the planets and beyond the celestial sphere, just as my beautiful space lover Bruno had foretold before they killed him in 1600. But it turns out, while Newtonian mechanics do still describe the way things act and react in the world we ourselves interact with, gravity is actually incredibly confusing on a cosmic scale. There was a quick attempt in the late 1700s to explain where planets and satellites and such all came from and why they orbit the way that they do, because Newton's only comment on this was, God. Pierre-Simon Marquis de Laplace thought this was dumb and useless and a bit of a cop-out, but Newton was dead by the time Laplace came around, so Laplace didn't get to say it to his face. Instead, Laplace came up with a nebular hypothesis, where the nebulous masses drifting through space would start to condense and their velocity increase, causing rings of vapor. The vapor, in turn, would condense to form the planets, while the middle, original shape would be the sun. The German philosopher Immanuel Kant had proposed this in 1755, while Laplace published on it in 1796, but Laplace's nebular hypothesis was an extensive five-volume work that stole from other writers a whole lot. It wasn't fair, but it was fairly common in science to just steal people's data and not give them credit. I'll also say that Laplace got very close to positing black holes, as he proposed the idea of massive stars whose gravity was so intense that not even uh, light could escape their pull. We now know that light is a particle that acts like a wave, but this is when light was considered to be made up of particles. Or, in the grossest science term I think I'll ever say in an astronomy podcast, corpuscles. This is gross vocabulary watch. I'm instituting this right now because I love words but hate certain words, and this word is gross. Corpuscles. So noted. <laughs> okay, back to cosmology. Laplace was basically going off of Newton's model, and he was still using Newton's law of universal gravitation. Newtonian gravity only works well on medium scale, though. You can't go quantum level itty-bitty atoms with it, and you can't go cosmic either. Some people stuck with Newtonian gravitational models, and they're working on modifying it a little bit, so all power to them. I don't know if the modified Newtonian dynamics, also known as the MOND theory, is right or not, but I'll keep moving on because I haven't reached the end of this cosmology train yet. 19th century astronomers at least knew the shape of our solar system, finally, but they still didn't understand the universe, though they were beginning to realize that it was a pretty big thing. Going into the 19th century, astronomers realized the universe had to be finite. They just couldn't agree on a good number. Halley, our man with the comet, figured out the distance from the sun to the Earth, 93 million miles, which helped us discover the scale for the entire solar system that we live in. However, astronomers still had to figure out how big the Milky Way actually was. And even in 1920, the American astronomer Harlow Shapley said, referring to the cloudy, spiral-shaped nebulae that massive naked-eye telescopes and the new radio telescopes had been picking up for years, quote, Even if the spirals are stellar, 
They are not comparable in size with our stellar system. A contemporary of his, Herbert Curtis, insisted that there were galaxies as big as our own throughout the universe, which is true. But Curtis said that our Milky Way was 30,000 light years in diameter, which was way too small. Three times too small. Shapley guessed that the Milky Way was 300,000 light years across, which is way too big. Three times too big. And these shitty numbers weren't even out of our galaxy yet. By this time in scientific history, Albert Einstein was here, and he had already published his special theory of relativity, which isn't relevant to our cosmology exploration right now. It's about how time and distance are related. I won't go into it. In 1915, though, he published his general theory of relativity, which did address gravity from a whole new perspective. This is the... Oh, maybe you haven't heard of it. This will be a weird thought experiment for you. Okay. Picture a sheet of rubber. What happens when you put a heavy orb on it? The sheet warps and curves around it, but only for a certain distance. Move far enough away from the orb, and it's Flatsville. If you rolled a smaller ball, like a marble, on the sheet, pretty close to the big orb, it would roll down towards the heavy orb. If you gave it a sideways push close to the orb, it would orbit for a little bit before spiraling in. But if you rolled a little marble on the sheet away from the orb, on a place that's not affected by the heavy object sitting on it, it'll just roll on its merry way. The heavy orb is a stand-in for something like the sun, and the sheet is something Einstein called space-time. Large masses like planets and stars warp space-time. This warping accounts for the orbit and movement of the planets and stars in space, and it even affects light. It also, as you could infer from the title, affects time. It's cosmic-scale gravity. Pickover has a good quote in his book that I think explains it super well. Quote, Matter makes space bend. Space tells matter how to move. I won't get into how time gets fucked up by the general theory of relativity. I'll save that for a talk about black holes or something. But here's a new cosmological model of the universe. Warping space-time gets you gravity, and mass warps space-time. What are we missing? Well, we still don't know how big the universe is. Going off his gravitational field equations, Einstein believed that the size of the universe was fixed, and that there had to be a constant force that could counteract the effects of gravity. Otherwise, the universe would collapse as all the masses in it warped space-time until they were all sliding towards each other. That number he called the cosmological constant, which he denoted with the Greek letter lambda. Uh, lambda looks like an upside-down V, in case you want to know a little Greek there. Now, at the time Einstein was considering the cosmological constant, there had been a weird observation. Way back in 1868, William Huggins had measured the radial velocity of the star Sirius. The star was moving away from the Earth at, like, 30 miles per second. The way you could tell it was moving away was by using something called a spectroscope. When a star was moving away, it emitted red light in this spectroscope, which was called a redshift. No one thought to measure how a spiral nebula was moving until 1899, and what people found as they measured the radial velocity of the nebulae was that they were moving way, way faster than the stars. Some were even coming at us instead of moving away from us, though this wasn't really common. If they were coming at us instead of exhibiting a redshift, they gave off blue light, and you can infer that this was called a blue shift. Older stars were also moving away from us way faster than younger ones. None of these findings were consistent or expected. 
The American astronomer Vesto Melvin Slipher, which is one hell of a name, he measured a ton of these nebulae, which was super duper hard to do. I'll go into this later on an episode on spectroscopy, but holy shit, measuring nebulae was hard. They're not as bright as stars are, and it wasn't until 1914 or so that astronomers realized the spirals were actually other galaxies, and were therefore systems separate from the stars, so their motions couldn't be compared to each other, because these systems were completely different things from stars. Radial velocities of spirals were almost always receding, and were much larger than the radial velocities of stars or gaseous nebulae. In 1918, our guy Harlow Shapley suggested that, quote, the speed of spiral nebulae is dependent to some extent upon apparent brightness, indicating a relation of speed to distance, or possibly to mass, but he didn't follow up on his hypothesis. Basically, he was saying that the further away a galaxy was from us, the faster it was moving away. But what did it mean? Whatever, Slipher just kept measuring galaxy velocities. By 1923, he'd measured 41, which is really good. A ton of other astronomers from around the world were publishing on their measurements and the conclusions at this time, but it took Edwin Hubble and his 1929 paper, titled, excitingly, A Relation Between Distance and Radial Velocity Among Extragalactic Nebulae, to pull all of the pieces together. His data showed that there was a linear relation between a star or nebula or galaxy's redshift and its distance from Earth. For some reason, Shapley hated this paper and actually composed a rebuttal, but he still had to admit that there was a correlation between a nebula's velocity and its distance. The redshift distance relation means our universe is expanding. Einstein refused to accept it right up until the end of his life when he admitted that the cosmological constant he'd been looking for was a bad move on his part. He called it his biggest mistake, actually. Einstein wasn't really an astronomer. He was a theoretician. He was actually kind of closer to Ptolemy in some ways, way less hands-on with his observations, but way focused on thinking about how the universe fit together. He was just as preoccupied with making the model work mathematically as Ptolemy was, but he had access to way more information and way better measurements, as well as the kinds of scientific tools that Ptolemy wouldn't have even been able to fathom. As of, uh, I guess, now, April 2017, the current cosmological model is the Lambda Cold Dark Matter model. There's a unbelievable shitload of math involved in every scientific paper I could find on this model, but I can break it down a little bit based on the title. The Lambda, that little upside down V, it turns out Einstein wasn't really wrong with his cosmological constant. The current model does use it, and it's still denoted with Lambda. Einstein was working with a universe that wasn't expanding, so he had to introduce the cosmological constant to counteract gravity. When he recognized that the universe was expanding, he let that constant go. Now, though, scientists are exploring dark matter and dark energy. In 1998, the Hubble Space Telescope observed very distant supernovae and showed that the universe used to expand much more slowly than it does today and scientists theorized that there was an unobservable energy called dark energy that speeds up the universe's expansion. They can't actually uh, see it, but they can measure it. NASA's 2001 Wilkinson Microwave Anisotropy Probe gathered information about the makeup of our universe, in addition to data about cosmic microwave background radiation, if you can remember that from the first podcast. And while only 4.6% of our universe's atoms that build planets and stars and you and me, 71.4% is dark energy. 
The Lambda Cold Dark Matter model says that this dark energy is the cosmological constant. Other theories suggest that it's a temporary thing, and it'll fade away eventually. Who knows? The last 24% of the makeup of our universe is cold, dark matter, which is the second part of the current cosmological model. It's as theoretical as dark energy, but just as noticeable, though you have to look at how it affects the things around it to see that it exists. According to an article from 2008, it's the dominant gravitating mass in the universe. I get the feeling I could do a whole other podcast on dark matter and dark energy, though, so I'm going to just leave it at that. We're in the lambda cold dark matter model of our universe now. All right, quick wrap up. So what did we learn today? Ptolemaic model of the solar system, which he considered the universe, was geocentric and a whole bunch of spheres. The Copernican system was heliocentric, but the Catholic Church didn't let it gain traction. My boy Tycho had a geo-heliocentric model that was also terrible, but I'll forgive him. Kepler covered more ground than Tycho did, fixing up Copernicus's model with elliptical orbits. Galileo invented the telescope and endorsed Copernicus so hard. Bruno was burned at the stake for thinking about worlds beyond our solar system and the beings that might live out there. Descartes had vortical theories, but I hate them. Newton defined gravity and applied inertia. Laplace had some nebulous ideas, and yes, that's a good joke, but it was also how he thought planets were formed in the Newtonian model. Einstein described general relativity and the rubber sheet space-time universal model. Hubble swooped in with redshift distance relations and showed the universe was expanding. Now, we're in a state of expansion, with a force of gravitation and a universal constant that we don't fully understand. <laughs> Spooky? Nah. It's something I'm never going to physically see. And while it's something I'm inevitably interacting with every day, it's not here, so I won't worry about it, and neither should you. From here, I'm thinking about either coming back down to Earth and people and looking at henges, or staying out in current theory and covering spectroscopy or all this dark matter and shit. Maybe black holes? I'm leaning towards more history and less theory, but you can let me know on the website what you're curious about. You can also tweet at me at HDInTheVoid on Twitter. I hope you all heard something today that surprised you about astronomy in space. All of it pats my head and rubs my tummy. I can pinky promise the next episode will wander ever deeper into the cat's cradle tangle of astronomy and history and society to pat your head and rub your tummy too. <laughs> Tune in for that one, which should be up in two weeks on May 8th. As always, sources, music credits, and a vocab list and a script are available at, all one word, fill the void dash with dash space dot tumblr dot com this time along with a timeline of all the people that I mentioned hugs and kisses from the void HD signing off <laughs>